It's great to be here. Um, it, it, Mondays and Tuesdays are just hard, aren't they? But then you say, well, let's do a Wednesday and a Thursday, and that seems to be even harder. And then Thursday, Friday, are you kidding me? We're getting ready for Sunday. That's impossible. So we're back to Mondays and Tuesdays again. And, uh, but I know how hard it is, and we're going to try to do everything we can uh, by God's Spirit's help to make this the most productive and efficient use of your time possible. I am not here to waste your time. Um, I don't believe God. God's time is a resource that we need to waste. So we're going to go through um, a biblical theology, philosophy, and practice of disciple making. I just want to qualify that you know Grace Church of Mentor is not the model. It's just a model. Okay, this is not a commercial about Grace Church of Mentor. This is hopefully an advertisement of God's grace of what he would love to do by his spirit in any local church that seeks to pursue a biblical theology, philosophy, and practice of disciple-making. Right? So if you open up your notes, I just want you to, I would encourage you, if you would, to, to write down something uh, right at the top, even above the title, uh, that is not on your notes. I purposely leave it off the notes uh, so that you can uh, begin to have it indelibly printed in your mind um, uh, this statement, right? that if what we're going to study, if this is biblical, okay, if it's biblical, it ought to be doable in any size church in any culture. If this is biblical, it needs to be doable in any size church in any culture. We often think about conferencing and seminaring in the United States as various creative ways to do church in the United States, or we may even do that in different parts of the world. But what we understand when we uh, take a, an honest look, if we're going to be intellectually honest with the content of Scripture, uh, that, that this is something that we ought to be able and we should be putting hands and feet to in our local churches. And I will tell you, if it's biblical, right, it ought to be doable, but what you'll find between now and the end of tomorrow is that you will find possibly, as, as I did, <laughs> we still are, that, there, that it's a far stretch from the way we do church and the way we're accustomed to doing church to stepping out into a disciple-making reality. Right? A lot of us have been doing discipleship right, without really understanding the theology of what disciple-making is. We're going to discuss that, right? I also want to challenge you with this. You folks are familiar with Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 16, right? God gave gifts, one of those gifts of the pastor-teacher gift, and the pastor-teacher gift was to do what? Equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. What's the work of the ministry through verse 16? That's chapter 4, at the beginning, 1 through 4, 5. Mm -hmm. At the end, verses 11 to 16, after the pastor-teacher gift. Um, that you can all stand and not be driven with every wind. Good. Getting warmer. That you are complete. Good. Yeah. Getting even warmer. Yeah. <laughs> I always ask pastors this, and I ask their wives, and I ask ministry leaders this, male and female, all the time. What? is the work of the ministry in chapter 4. 
because we've often preached through it, yours truly included, right, outside of its immediate implications within the context, outside of its chapter context, and certainly outside of its book context, and certainly outside the flow of the book of Ephesians. We have, we have often preached, we did, and had did for decades, right, that the work of the ministry is defined really by the needs of what Grace Church has. And how do we get people prepared to be busy and not be um, members who are spiritually healthy enough to reproduce God's will in somebody else? Remember the wording there? Every joint supplying towards what goal? Edifying of itself in love. The measure of the statute of the fullness of Christ. Now, if we just step back, right, and ask our people to draw the circle around themselves individually, how many of your people have been equipped by you, by me, to do that? That's not happening just by people sweeping and painting and arranging and cleaning mowing, weeding, hang on with me here, singing, all right, even formal teaching, because not everyone has the gift of teaching. Every member motivated, equipped by the pastor with the word of God, to be able to grow somebody else by use of the Word of God into a more mature understanding of who Jesus Christ is. Most of the churches of our stripe, I can speak of the stripe that I come from, most, if not all, have never done that. And I'm not even saying that to throw them under the bus because we were that for 60 years of our existence. Okay? But what, what do we need to do? That's what we're going to talk about today and tomorrow, okay? It's never too late to do right. We're going to give you our story. We're going to tell you how, how tough it got in Northeast Ohio, okay? And we always have a Philippians 3 mindset, right? We, we never feel like we've arrived. <laughs> but there are some things that we need to forget about in the past as we strive forward towards understanding what Christ's likeness is. That's the goal of our lives, Right? But Christ's likeness has to be more than just understanding his nature and the content of his character. Christ's likeness means we have to investigate the way he lived. And we have to like it. People say, what do you mean? We're always talking about the nature of Christ, and we should. His character, and we should. We have to know those things fundamentally in order we're going to pursue him and his character, Right? But do you like, do we like the way he lived? Well, of course we like the way he lived. Well, how did he live? Does the Bible talk about a work ethic? All right. I know Jesus was the Messiah. He was the coming king. He grew up doing what, though? He was a carpenter. Did Jesus have the pastor-teacher gift? No. Right? When did gifts start to come? Who gave them? At what point? Did Jesus have the gift of evangelism? I don't know. You can 
go into your theological books and study this all you want. I'm just tossing out. The local church hadn't started yet, right? He was a carpenter from a small town. He was fully man, and he was also fully God. So we have to look at the way he lived and learn from it. And a lot of us as pastors have not even done that. And so we're not Christ-like in the way we live and the way we make disciples. Carpenter does a better job than a pastor-teacher does. Well, he was perfect. I get that. I get that. But there's still a lot that those gifted with the pastor-teacher gift can do. And there's a lot that those who aren't gifted with the pastor-teacher gift could do because he's a carpenter, right? He's a blue-collar worker. What was he doing to make disciples? I understand the authority he came with, and I understand the, the, uh, the, uh, the dual nature of our Lord. I get that. Okay. We talk about Christ-likeness again. We have to be okay with the way he lived. And then we have to duplicate the way he lived in our own lives in order for our people to learn the way he lived from us so that they can do the same. We'll talk about that. All right? So when you think about Ephesians 4 again and what it means to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry, follow the grammar all the way through the end of the chapter. And then have your people draw the circle. You draw it around yourselves first as ministry leaders, okay? Because in our church, this took off really first with our women before it did our men. As a matter of fact, our men are almost caught up to where our women are. Not yet, right? Uh, everyone's got to draw, you've got to help them draw the circle around their own seat, their own hearts, and say, am I Christ-like in the way I live my life in relationship to being a disciple-maker? All right? So anyways, there's a few objectives here uh, that we have listed for you. Kind of highlighted those. We'll review them real quickly, and then we'll get going together. We certainly want to present a biblical theology. Nothing's done properly in the local church unless it's got a biblical defense for it. We want to challenge each of you to be a disciple maker yourselves. We're going to do that philosophically and give you a lot of practical ways to do that. And along the way, we'll refute some current and past incorrect philosophical trends in the understanding of the Great Commission. And uh, all the way through it, we'll, it's never right to do the right thing the wrong way. We're going to try to do the right thing the right way this whole time. So just a few questions here very quickly uh, to get us started. All right, a uh, little history and then some questions. Uh, I grew up in a pastor's home. I'm a PK. Um, um, I grew up in a Christian school, kindergarten through 12th grade. All right. I have um, a Bible major, business minor in my undergrad, got a master's degree. Went on after that and got a Master of Divinity degree, working through D-Men currently. All right. Um, from zero to 23, <laughs> when I got married, I had never lived the life of a disciple maker. From 23 to 41, even as a full-time paid pastor, I had not lived the life of a disciple maker. From 41 to 51, the last 10 years, I'm still learning what the life of a disciple maker is. But it started, right, in my early 40s, 
when I realized that I had not spiritually reproduced myself in my own community one time in 41 years because I grew up in the church that I'm pastoring. My dad was the pastor there for 34 years. I was 15 years underneath him before I became the pastor in 06. Right? We moved to mentor when I was three. I've been there all my life. I had not won someone to the Lord Jesus Christ my whole life there. As a pastor, certainly, invitations, corporate youth outreaches, right? Children's events, Christmas programs, Easter, right? But that's not disciple-making. That's giving the gospel. That's doing it together as a body. But what about Tim Potter? In all my life in Mentor, I've only won... Uh, it's seven people to the Lord now since I was 41. And two of them are already with Jesus. That's it. That's it for me personally. The church I pastor, it was go, go, go with corporate and situational evangelism. Always handing out tracts, right? Always doing the door-to-doors always canvassing, always VBSing, always youth outreaching, all those things. And we found out that the church still comes to plateau and decline during all those times. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. Busy, busy, busy. Hoofing it, as we say in our neck of the woods, because we grew up in Amish time. There's always hooves going. <laughs> okay. Where we were hoofing it all the time. But Jesus wasn't building this church with health because I wasn't doing it, okay? My dad pastored that church for 34 years and on his deathbed, in tears, right, in tears, had never won a personal friend to Christ in town, but had led people to Christ in his lifetime, right? It's haunting when a pastor thinks about that but churches become like their pastors. All right? Uh, so that's my little life's history. My wife grew up at Grace Baptist Church in Muncie, Indiana. She went to Heritage Hall Christian School. Same life story as mine. And I'm not saying our life stories are going to be descriptive of everyone's here. I know there's multiple backgrounds here. Right? But in our neck of the woods, my wife still to this day at 51 years old has never won a friend to Jesus Christ in her lifetime. And we talk about that. She did when she did Awana, when she was at Grace Baptist Church in Muncie. Big time evangelistic outreaches all the time there. Just like there are in most of our churches. Okay, 51 years old. But you know what, folks? Uh, Jim Stump says in his book, he did a study with Bar the Barna Group, 95% uh, of American evangelicals have never won a personal friend to Christ in our country. Okay? Outside of a Bible study, outside of a Sunday school classroom, outside of an invitation of a service, outside of a, a big evangelistic outreach, okay? We haven't done that because we haven't been appreciating the life of Jesus Christ. We really haven't been. 
We haven't analyzed the way he lived his life. We haven't analyzed how Jesus and the natural rhythms of his daily human life was rubbing shoulders and making friends of unbelief and with unbelief. Obviously, his character wasn't going to change, right? Tempted with never sinning. So that's a great example to follow for us, isn't it? Right? But a lot of us grew up in a culture where we were taught Proverbs chapter 1, thank God, but out of its context, right? If you run with wicked people, you're going to do what? Do wicked things. Evil companions corrupt good morals. And they always connected to that in our neck of the woods to James. Friendship with the world is what? Enmity with God. And we would agree, but again, you've got to understand the context of both. And then we're taken over to Psalm 1. And even you know, outside of its context, applied to Christian education somehow. Right? And so what we did by the applications of those texts, out of their context, we're backing our people up to do fortress evangelism. Or what I call greenhouse evangelism. We all enjoy the beauty of the greenhouse inside as we're growing up into the character of God, but not the life of Christ. That's kind of an oxymoron. Right? And we'll go out of the greenhouse, but we'll go together. Right? So we'll be protected, and then we're all going to go back to the greenhouse together, close the doors. Right? Maybe we'll pick up a few out there to come back in and grow them together. Right? And uh, the evangelical local church greenhouse effect has proven a failure. It's proven a failure. But pastors were at the head of it. Okay? We were. Anyways, we were planted in 1948. We were a plant of the GRBC, the Ohio arm of that. Uh, we had five pastors between 48 and 72. My dad uh, was the pastor for 34 of those years, from 72 all the way to 05. During that time, the growth of our church was sporadic at best. Um, my dad was a Moody grad. Uh, he grew up in a home that was Christian by name only. Um, his dad actually was the head of ushering at uh, Harry Ironside's church, Old Moody Church in Chicago. My dad's uncle uh, was the head of co-portage or co-portering. It's an old-fashioned word for evangelistic outreach back in the day. Uh, my uncle Dana uh, was his name. He died at 99 years old, having been saved for 78 years. Uh, my dad's dad was there. I don't think my dad's dad was ever born again, though. When his dad died, um, they had a large farm back in Middlefield, Ohio. And, and back in the day when dad died, <laughs> the oldest kid was called back to come take care of mom on the farm. And his mom was an atheist, and, and she's just a bitter, bitter lady. And uh, my, my grandpa, from that day forward, never walked with God until he died at 84 years old. Right? Uh, my dad grew up. Uh, in a Christian <laughs> by name only home. Uh, he went to Kent State University, uh, was born again. He was on a basketball and track scholarship there. Uh, and he was born again his, at the end of his freshman year. And um, that's when obviously God gifted him for pastor teacher ministry. His soul was restless and he um, dropped his track scholarship, finished his degree in 
secondary uh, high school education, uh, went on to the University of South Carolina, got a master's degree in education, and then went on to Moody Bible Institute uh, to get a Bible degree. He had a stop off in between South Carolina and Chicago, back in Northeast Ohio. They went to, uh, he went, took a couple classes at Cleveland Baptist Institute, and that's where he met my mom. Uh, they dated, got married, moved to Chicago, and he uh, finished his three-year Bible degree uh, there. Kenneth Weiss was his Greek professor. My dad was a, a tremendous student of the Word, languages, history. Uh, was a tremendous exegete of God's Word, um, but he was self-taught. My dad, my dad, from the time he was born into the family of God, never had a mentor. He did church the way he was taught to do church in school and by pastors that he became acquainted with, we'll talk about here, when he was in ministry. He came to Northeast Ohio, and that's where he was ordained. Uh, his first church was in Parma, Ohio, on the west side of Cleveland. Uh, he was just there for two years. Uh, Billy Graham was coming to town back then, and Billy Graham Association had invited 180 Roman Catholic churches to participate in doing the counseling uh, when people would walk the aisle. Uh, my dad was uncomfortable with that because he didn't felt that the Catholic Church preached the gospel. And uh, he, he wasn't comfortable shouldering with their leaders of their churches and giving the gospel to people who walk the aisle. So he said, I pray that some people get saved, but we're going to do our own evangelistic outreach that week. He went away on vacation for a few days. He had a unanimous vote that they were going to do their own thing and not participate in the Grand Crusade. He came back and uh, the deacons in those few days had turned... Uh, the other direction again, and there was uh, posters up all over the church for the uh, Graham Crusade. And at that point, my dad felt like he couldn't participate, so he resigned after two years of being there and came to uh, the east side of Cleveland to Grace Baptist Church in Willoughby. Right? Seventeen members voted him in in 1972. Okay? Uh, that was a garb church. It was a garb plant, as I said back in '48. In 1976, the churches in our area, this is just our history. I'm not speaking at this point for any of your histories. This is just our history so that you can understand how we came to pursuing more and more a disciple-making model, what we learned and what we had to learn, okay? Um, uh, the GRBC in Northeast Ohio began to go a tractional model uh, in their... Um, growth of their churches in the middle 70s. Um, it's what I call a field of dreams theology, right? If you build it, they will come, right? What can we do to get people to come to church? How can we make ourselves attractive enough to appeal to man to get them to come to church? And for the attractional model is the antithesis of the Great Commission. You know that. Because Jesus didn't say, invite them to church. He said what? He said, go, right? 95% of American evangelicals, even in our stripe, that we would say is not a tractional model, I quite frankly would have to tell you that we're 95% of us became a tractional model. You don't have to have a rock band and smoke and purple lights and a pastor that looks more hip than holy on the stage to be a tractional model. We were a tractional model of grace. Okay? And most of us are. 
bring them in, right? We do what the hymn says. Bring them in, bring them in, bring them in from the seals of sin. Jesus said, no, go, 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 right? And we wonder why we have so much disease inside of our churches now, because we've been inviting in people, <laughs> and then we have to fix the disease from the inside out. And Jesus said, no, you don't like the way I live, did you? Well, certainly we did. Well, you're not doing it. <laughs> we'll talk about more of that later. But anyway, so he pulled out. He didn't want to do that. But yet, but yet, because of where he was in his own particular understanding of the biblical doctrine of separation, he still himself wasn't a disciple maker. So in the late 70s and 80s, we spent our time identifying with a group of pastors in Ohio called the Ohio Bible Fellowship. Has anyone ever heard of the OBF, the Ohio Bible Fellowship? This, church, this group of pastors began in 1968, okay? 17 men pulled out of what many of you may know as the IFCA, Independent Fundamental Churches of America. Are you familiar with that? Probably more out west here. Um, um, the IFCA decided in 1968 that they would no longer print any more articles in their magazine called The Voice on texts like Romans 16, 2 Thessalonians 3, right? 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 7, 1. They're no longer printing any more articles on uh, the doctrine of ecclesiastical separation. So these men uh, called the president in. He flew to Ohio. He addressed these 17 men as why they were no longer comfortable doing that. They asked him to change his mind. They wouldn't, so they pulled out and they started the Ohio Bible Fellowship uh, 51 years ago. Okay? So... My dad found safety there. He never pulled our church into it, but he identified with those men for quite a few years. So we're involved in solid Bible teaching. We're, we're still doing our event-based evangelism. We're standing properly as best as we could according to God's Word as he knew it at that point. But we're still coming to years of plateau and decline. In 1990, we couldn't even pay our missionaries. This is a church that started in 48, remember? Okay. So from 48 to 90, our attendance charts just look like a heart monitor. Just boom, 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 right? I say plateau and decline, but that's actually very nice to us, right? We would grow and then dip. It wasn't really a butte. It wasn't a plateau and then decline, right? And we couldn't figure out why, right? In 1991, they hired me. They said, okay, what are we going to do? All right, my dad got with the leaders and he said, we're taking a right stand, we're teaching well, but, but we're not seeing Jesus build his church, so we're going to go full throttle evangelism. Well, back in the day, what you did was you built your church through reaching teens. That's actually what I was taught in my undergrad, right? I wanted to go out and be a youth pastor and uh, I had a Bible major, like I said, a business minor. And boy, how can I put all this together and go back to my hometown and blitz reaching teens? Well, we did. When I got there in 1991, we had five kids in the youth group. By 1993, we had over 110 kids every Wednesday night from 25 different schools in the area. We blitzed it. We got them to come. And I found out that it's really easy to get kids to come if you give them some really fun games and all-you-can-eat pizza, a skit, and then a 15-minute sermon. That's not hard. It'll physically wear you out, but it doesn't take a genius to do that. Right? Did some people get saved through that? Mercifully, yes. God, God saved some. 
and we praise God for that, all right? As a matter of fact, three of those kids are now married, and they're with their families in our church years later, okay? Whatever 300 times 13 is, I'll tell you what, let's back that down. We had an average of 57 kids come forward for salvation 13 years in a row. You do the math. Okay. We have three that are with us right now. Okay. And we praise God for those three, but I'm going somewhere with that. So we did. We blitzed evangelistically with, with teens, and it worked for a while. We had 110 kids, like I said, a short time later, 24 months later, and uh, word got out in our community. This church likes kids. Let me go check out a church that likes kids. So we had some people visiting. Uh, most of those people visiting, though, were transfers from other churches that didn't have vibrant youth groups, right? And you kind of get excited that in the windshield, but the rear view mirror is a different look. Right? Real excited in the forward look and immediate. Yeah, that's why I put worked in quotes here. We got them to come, but we weren't disciple making. We even grew enough for these church transfers to start tithing so we could pay our missionaries and back pay our missionaries. So it looks successful right up front. And then we realized we were plateauing and declining again. So though evangelistic while maintaining our emphasis on teaching, uh, we came to the same state, same condition again. It was time for another pastoral self-evaluation. So what were we doing in this evaluation? We really believe that we're taking a right stand. We're trying to teach uh, the whole will of God. We're certainly not shying back from uh, what Paul said in Acts chapter 20. I have my phone on mute, but it's buzzing for some reason and making funny noises. Right? And why did Paul say that he had a burden when he's with the Ephesian elders in Miletus and seeing them for the final time to preach the whole will of God? It was for their what? So when those wolves that are inevitable come in, and they do come in, right, you'll be protected. So we weren't going to preach, we were not going to, we were going to not, not preach any particular verse of the Bible. Our conscience was clear on that. I think it's very important for us to know that because we still were not being disciple-making people. Nothing wrong with that pursuit, but it still left us short. We're evangelizing, though most of it was situational and corporate, while maintaining solid programs and some facilities. And we realized it was mostly the, the pastors, the paid guys, the trained professionals that were doing that, though. Right, so what did we do? We sought the Lord for wisdom. We got together, the two of us, and we repented of our sins. And we said, something's not right here, Lord. We think it's us. We need to go on a journey to figure out why we think it's us. And you need to tell us. We even offered our resignations. Something is not happening here, and Jesus is not building his church and we really don't even know what building his church is. Because we've been building it, but we're not really sure we understand what it means when Jesus builds it. Okay? We've been really busy, Lord. We didn't know anything short, like most of you folks, of a 65, 70-hour work week and ecclesiastical stuff. 
but it didn't seem at all that Jesus was with us. I think he honored us for as much as we honored him, but in this evaluation we found out for us, we never blamed our people. That's a stage four cancer for a pastor to always blame his people when things aren't going right. Right? Our people had become us, they were following us, and, and we weren't disciple makers. So, as I said at the beginning, we understand that we had not been practicing Ephesians 4, 11 to 16, right? We had been teaching the people, we had been getting them baptized, and we had been getting them to become members, and we got them busy serving, but we had not been equipping them to do what the language of that text says, right? We had not been preparing every one of them with a biblical responsibility, man, woman, and children, that God had a soul for them in that church and in that community, both, to spiritually reproduce God's will in somebody else. Right? So we had a group of unexpected people. They weren't expecting to do that because they were busy ecclesiastically. All right? We began to search for disciple-making ministry that also took a good stand on God's Word. I asked our deacons if I could begin to call churches throughout the country, and I called at least one church in all 50 states, and I called over 300 churches. And I just said, hey, do you guys have a disciple-making ministry? All right? Only two out of over a little over 300 churches said yes. So I said, good, I need to know. <laughs> you know what, do you, what is disciple-making for you? It's like, well, if someone gets saved in our church... Someone gets, you know, an invitation or they get saved on door to door or through a corporate outreach. We have one, one church used um, an old book. I think it's still in print. It's just called One by One. Have you ever heard of that? One by One. And then another church used another book called Basics for Believers. And they said, we'll give that person to a leader to go through that book. All right. They'll be baptized. They'll go through that book. They'll become a member. And then we just put them into service in the church. All right? So the two churches that we found over 300, I understand 300 is not 3,000 or 30,000, but it was a lot for us. <laughs> All right? And we found two. That was the extent of it. Saved through corporate outreach, right? Given to a leader to go through a volume, member, be busy. Okay? Get to church three to four services a week, serve tithe, worship, outreach with us, we're good. Okay. So we're thankful for that because that was at least one step farther than what we were doing. At least they had a volume that they were using to take new people through, new, new believers through. And at least their leaders were doing it. Uh, but again, it's still, still short of disciple making. So we learned for that. But we are still looking for a biblical model, right? So finally, the Lord led us to a church that was outside of our call list. A friend of mine who um, had been listening to what? He's in our local church. Uh, he was not from our area originally. He had a friend from another part of the country. This was in Missouri. And he said, you know, Pastor, I'm learning this along with you. And I think I have a friend that, whose church is doing what you guys are talking about, even though we're not doing it yet. So he put me in contact with them. The short story is I asked our deacons if I could go down and visit this church, and they said yes. And I went down to meet with their outreach pastor on a Monday morning, 
And uh, we went through some stuff for about an hour or so. And he said, you know, Tim, you're really not going to get this unless you come back to the church tonight at 7 o'clock. And he said, meet me at the gym. And he said, I just want to show you, right? I said, okay. So I did. And we had some small talk in the, in the lobby. The parking lot was full when I got there. And um, I thought that was interesting on a Monday evening for the parking lot to be full. And it wasn't an athletic event, right? Um, so we walked over to the side of the gym, double doors like back here, and, and he opened them up, and uh, the gym was full of tables like this, right? Um, around the whole perimeter. Um, you, you, if you were going to go in between the tables, pretty much just like this, or around the tables, you'd have to walk sideways. So figure a full high school gymnasium just packed with tables like this, and there were eight people at every table, right? And in between each person, all right, was a Bible, right, and a Bible study book. That's all. They each had their own Bible, and they each had their own Bible study book, right? And throughout the whole gym, every seat full, acoustics are pretty good in a gym, right? And that's what I saw. And I just began to weep. And I said, is this what I think it is? And he goes, yeah, he said, everyone that sees it has that response. And he said, every person in here is training someone they've led to Christ in town, not at a church outreach event. And while they're waiting to win a friend for Christ in town, they're being trained or training someone else in the church unto that end. Never seen it before in my life. But all of a sudden, Ephesians 4 is clicking in my head. Right? All these hundreds of calls that we had made before. Multiple Bible passages regarding the life of Jesus Christ are starting to click in my head. Because remember, these weren't people that were reached from an outreach. These were people that the, church, the people of this Baptist church were out in town just living the natural rhythms of life, assuming that God had at least one soul for them to reach, and it started with the pastor. It started with the pastor. Okay? So it's like, oh, wow. That's, that was powerful. But looking back on it now, those pastors had written nine books for their people to study. Right? And it would take them, they said, up to three to four years for each. So if I won Donnie to Jesus, right, at the factory, it would take us three to four years on Monday nights to go through those books. And by the way, before we study every Monday night, Donnie and I are praying for our lost relatives, coworkers, neighbors, and friends. We start with evangelistic prayer because disciple-making has a lot of different layers to it. <laughs> okay, and one of those objectives is right? To be fishers of men. So we pray and then we study. And so when we leave, we're assuming something. We're assuming that we're going deeper in the word, but we're also assuming we're going wider in our evangelistic influence. And so we leave every Monday night lifting our eyes to the fields that are white into harvest. We're expecting and we're assuming that God would have one for each of us and we're not the pastor of the church. We're not even on staff. We're 60-hour work factory people, and I just want him to Jesus, and we're just studying. But we're assuming there's other someone else. Are you with me? 
right? That was the mindset of those people, okay? But when we're done with those three to four years, I feel that that even stopped biblically short of the life of Christ and his disciples for this reason. When we were done with those nine lessons, Donnie and I were both entrenched in the church. Certainly, we're still going to try to win people, but we're no longer studying together. We're, we're busy, right? He might be the guy who shows up every Saturday to, to mow five acres of grass, right? And I might be the guy that's the sound booth operator, and so I'm always keeping up on the tech and all that kind of stuff. Both those things are good, right? So hang with me. This is a lot of good stuff we're talking about here, right? I'm not decrying any of this. Saved, discipled, I helped get him through baptism. We're growing deeper in the Word for four years together. We're going deeper in our service. We're going wider in our evangelistic influence. But even this church in Missouri found that ultimately to be short of a disciple-making goal. Because even in that environment, people were healthier and busy, but ultimately that church came to plateau and decline again too. So we're getting warmer, like we were talking about before. We're getting warmer, we're getting warmer, but what is this first century Christ-like reality actually look like? What is it? And, and we'll, we'll study that more together. Okay? So here's a few questions. Does Christ still build his church? You wouldn't be here if he wasn't. Right? Does he do it this way? You all believe each section, each word? I get to the last one, and there's quite a handful of pastors that start to tear up, and it gets real quiet in the room. Why? They don't know how, and they haven't seen it. Right? They haven't seen it. It's a lot of baptisms that have been storage rooms filled with cobwebs for years. But boy, they're doing their outreach. They got their budget for evangelism. They never stopped VBS. They never, they never, they never, but yet. Well, Jesus said he would, and I believe he is, nationally and regionally, but for us, I don't know, not so much. That's on the pastor. It was on us, right? Remember I said we had to repent and offer our resignations. We're going to really be honest with the life of Jesus Christ and what he said prophetically he would do, right? I mean, Matthew 16 is a prophecy, right? I will build my church. Really, the Great Commission's prophetic, isn't it? You will go, <laughs> and this will happen. It's not going to be fun all the time. It's going to be a glorious agony, but I will do this through you. If you, apostles, live life like I did. Okay? And by the way, how many of the apostles were actually post-Acts 2? Can we, can we at least historically, if not biblically, say we're confident that they were either given the pastor-teacher gift or the gift of evangelism? We know Paul, right? 
for sure, probably at least an evangelism gift. I don't think he was pastor-teacher got quality, but certainly he was very much interested in pioneering the gospel where it had not been before and always planting and planting, establishing and going and planting more. Who else? Maybe Peter. I think we see him taking on the majority of the preaching responsibilities, right, in early Acts. Maybe John. Maybe. And we're getting most of that data probably from historians, not necessarily the Bible. What were the backgrounds of the apostles? Who was Matthew? What was Luke? What were the sons of thunder? Are you with me? White collar to blue collar in our culture. And Jesus said, follow me and I will make you blue collar fishers of men. It's right there. What was Jesus again? Carpenter. Okay? So anyways, circling back to the expectation that Jesus would build his church locally, the expectation is always yes. And then we find out when he's not doing it, though we're doing all we're told to do, there's got to be another reanalysis. We've got to get back to are we doing what we should be doing? Not that we're doing anything wrong. I'll say that over and over and over again. Not that we've been doing anything wrong. All right, but have we been doing, all right, disciple making. All right, how does he build the church? Well, typically we use these three kinds of evangelism. And, and personal, though, personal evangelism is, is one that I really don't think we've understood to be what disciple making evangelism is. Most personal evangelism has even been taught by, in most evangelism classes as being situational evangelism. What do I mean by corporate, right? Uh, institutional or corporate evangelism, again, that's the VBSs, that's the youth outreach, that's the door-to-door, that's the Christmas Easter programs. You don't have to stop any of those. We never did. We still haven't. We're still doing those. Right? But again, we were still coming to plateau and decline, Right? We're always encouraging people to hand out tracts. I would never tell someone who's prompted by the Spirit of God to hand out a tract, don't do that. I mean, don't stop it. Don't stop the corporate. Don't stop the situational. But as you understand personal as a ministry leader here of men or women, personal evangelism as we've been taught in classes is pretty much descriptive of getting someone that you know in town who's an acquaintance to the point where they can actually go through a gospel tract with you. Or maybe you've taken an evangelism class by a traveling evangelist and praise God for those guys and what they teach, and maybe they've gotten a group like this in your church together to talk about how to talk a friend or an acquaintance through the gospel. But if they don't get saved, then what? Most don't answer that question. If they don't get saved, then what? A lot of us will toss out there Matthew 10, when Jesus was sending out to Jerusalem. If they don't get saved, do what? Dust off your sandals and move on and find the next acquaintance that will sit down and listen to you. That's not the life of Christ either. 
right? So anyways, most of our personal hasn't even been disciple-making evangelism. I don't have to show your hands, but how many of you have really, really, really good friends in town that know that you're going to be their friend whether they get saved or not? Right? But then here's the opposite side of that. How many of you have really good friends that know you're going to be their friend whether they get saved or not, and that has kept you from confronting them with the gospel during your friendship as well? Well, I shared it once and they didn't listen. Well, why'd you stay their friend? Because they're your friend. Good. Praise God. But the tendency is what? Well, I shared it once. And you stop praying for another opportunity. You stop praying for them. Right? And maybe you say, well, Lord, maybe just use that one time. I'm going to stay their friend and use that one time. God can do that. Don't stop praying for that. But your life, right, needs to be the life of Christ. Okay, his goal was always to be a saver of life unto life, right? Or death unto death. That's what Paul says, right? Second Corinthians 3, it is what it is, right? Anyways, just a little question here, um, just to keep tilling up the soil of our minds. Um, you can read through it together if you want. For a true first century church, if we learned a new language, changed our diet, bought appropriate clothing, did some on-the-job training in a new country, should we be able to thrive as a church in any culture? I understand there might be some other qualifiers that you would add to this interrogative, but really, uh, is this generally true or false? And maybe you say it's neither. It needs more analysis. That's fine, too. In other words, should we be able to take, if, if Arise Baptist Church is a disciple-making church, should we be able to take her, assuming all these things are true, get them established in the culture of Shanghai, and should she be able to know what to do to thrive as a New Testament local church? I think so. Flip your notes back. Maybe you're still there. What does it say? Well, yeah, we're still there. What does it say at the top of the page? What's the first thing I said? If it's biblical, it's doable. Any size church, any culture. Okay. Jesus never said, this is the way you're going to do church in the West, and this is the way you're going to do church in the East. This is the way you're going to do church in the North, and this is the way you're going to do church in the South. He never said that. Upon this rock, I will build my church, and my church will be grown by me if you appreciate who I am and the way I lived. Trust me. And there's someone else coming behind me who's just like me. Right? John 14 to 16. And when I go, I'm going to send him, and he's going to give you what? Power. Where's God's power been? Well, I think we've been kind of leaving it at bay because we really haven't been appreciating much about how Christ lived as we've been trying to appreciate who Christ is. It's the, it's, it's, it's the, it's the most deceptive thing that's spell that Satan has cast on our churches. 
to the point where he can even take his crosshairs off of us now. And he'll just let you, he'll just let you plateau and decline and die. He'll close your doors. He, he doesn't even have to worry about you anymore. He's done with you. Right? It's haunting. We were there. So I'm speaking from personal experience. I explained our history. We were there over and over and over and over again. All right? But it was my fault. It was my fault. God was just merciful to us. I think now, having been a little over 15 years into this, learning the culture and becoming a culture at Grace, like right now, only 80% of our people are even involved with this. We have 20% of our people that won't touch it. They're fine. I'm fine. Just keep coming. Keep worshiping. You know, keep watching. There should be no soul that's expendable because we get to do God's will. Right? Keep coming. You're all welcome. But I really think we could take those 80% now and move them anywhere in the world, and they would know exactly what to do. Because guess what we don't need anymore, even though we still do? Right? We don't need any more VBS. We don't need any more youth outreaches. We don't need any more invitations. We don't need any more Christmas programs. Don't need any more door-to-door we don't need anymore any of those things we can continue to do because over 95% of our growth is from new birth in the last five years. Right. As a matter of fact, we tell people, stop inviting people to church now. Don't invite them to church. What do we tell them to do? Jesus, invite him to Christ before you invite him to church. Unbelief can't worship anyway. Surprise, surprise. Come worship with us. And somehow by the pastor's jobs to give the gospel an invitation and then they'll get saved. Well, folks, that model's been mercifully used of God, but it's not entirely what Jesus meant by I'll build my church. Right? Jesus said, go. He did not say, bring them in. He just didn't. You can't find it anywhere in your Bible. You've been one of these verses. I, we did for years, too. I sat with the dude uh, twice in the last eight days. His name's Byron Floyd. Um, he's got a son, Byron Floyd Jr. My, my son Noah played football with him for, for three years. And... Uh, we built a relationship through football. Uh, Byron reached out to me recently and said his son was having some horrific emotional uh, issues. He had lost a grandpa before his sophomore year. The week of the opening game of his sophomore year, and the, he lost his other grandpa the next year, the same week. And he got to this year, <laughs> right, the week before the season. This kid's, this kid's going to Clemson on a football scholarship as a long snapper. This kid, this kid's one of the top seven long snappers in the country, right? And his dad said, I'd go into his bedroom and I'd find him with the lights off, just bawling his eyes out like a baby because he can't imagine going to play football without his grandpa to watch him or either one of his grandpas to watch him. And so he DM'd me on Twitter and he said, man, can you help us? He said, we know who you are. We appreciate the friendship. 
uh, appreciate what Noah was to, to Byron. He said, he just needs help. So I said, absolutely. I dropped my books. It was a, it was a Thursday. It was probably, it'll be two weeks this coming Thursday. I dropped my books and I said, let's go to lunch. I said, can Byron meet us for lunch? We did. And so we had a nice lunch and then I met his son that following Sunday night went through, um, you know what I did? I just went to Isaiah 9, 6. Because I understand, we, we've already built a relationship for several years with these folks, right? By the way, it's, it's really amazing how easy it is to give the gospel to people that know you love them. I've really found out in my life what Paul means now. <laughs> I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God. I always thought being ashamed of the gospel was being nervous to knock on a door and give it to someone I never met before. Or being even scared to go out and whatever, right? Then I realized not being ashamed of the gospel is actually being able to give the gospel naturally to someone that knows you love them. And believe you me, it does come up. If you're living in the natural rhythms of life with unbelief long enough, it naturally comes up. So anyways, that's another whole lecture for the advanced seminar that we do <laughs> back at Mentor. But anyways, um, so I met with him. I took him to Isaiah 9-6. What does it say? It's a prophecy of Jesus. And what's Jesus called in Isaiah 9-6, right? Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I said, do you see any names for Jesus in there, Byron, that could maybe help you right now? He went through it and he goes, I definitely need a counselor. I said, okay. So what else? And you knew what he was going to pick, right? What was he going to pick? With his emotional state, what's he going to pick? Prince of Peace. You have any peace in your heart? No. It's big, you know, 6'4", you know, 270. Starts bawling his eyes out. I said, I'm just going to leave you with that, man. I'm going to leave you with that. Right? I'm going to give you this. And I want you to study this, right? But I want to let you know, you don't need me. You don't need our church. You need Jesus. I cannot counsel you, and I cannot bring you peace. So I had lunch with his dad <laughs> on Wednesday, right? And I'm going through the same thing with him, because he's busted up because his son's busted up, right? He used to play college football too, big burly guy, right? And he's sitting there in tears in the restaurant, right? The waitress, the place I always go to, we, we went there, I think, when you guys come up, the little JT's Diner or whatever it's called. And uh, Tina came up and saw him, who she's known for years, right? Clear back to grade school, bawling his eyes out. She goes, well, okay, I'm not going to stay at this table for long, right? You have to know, we, we were good friends. So anyway, she walks away. And um, he goes, all right, I'm starting to get this. I'm starting to get this. I said, good. I said, it's just Jesus, Byron. And I said, really, the best way for you to help your son is to know Jesus yourself. He goes, okay, we're coming to church Sunday. I said, don't. He said, I'm going to bring Byron, and I'm going to bring his girlfriend, and I'm going to bring Byron's stepmom, my wife, Heather. I said, please don't. Please don't come. He goes, what are you talking about? I said, listen, man. You might see someone there you like. Right? You might see someone there from your past that you hate. It's exactly what I'm telling them. I said, I don't want you to be distracted by anyone. I said, just know Jesus. And I said, we'll meet next week. Right? 
just wants you to know Jesus. And trust me, Byron, when you know Jesus, you'll want to come to church, <laughs> okay? Because you'll be so amazed, Byron, by how much he's done for you. You'll just want to worship him, even if you're the only one that shows up. That's exactly what I told him. You'll just want to do that. But I said, but we're not there yet. And it's okay. It's okay. Right? And they came anyway. I just like, oh. so, I, so I'm getting up there, right, to, to do our, what we call it our church family time. And I look over here, and my heart sunk. It's like, oh, he came. <laughs> and then they all came. It was like half a row. I was not excited. So I told him afterwards. I said, I can't believe you came. I told you not to come. <laughs> I said, hopefully we didn't freak you out at all. He goes, no, man, it was all right. It was all right. I was like, listen, man, don't come anymore. Let's meet next week. Let's go through. I'm telling you, I'm talking to him just like this. I talk to all my friends like that. I don't want them to be attracted by me. I don't want them to be attracted by us. Right? I want to be attracted to Christ. All right? And by the way, you can't ever make the narrow way broad and the broad way narrow. So you're just out there trying to be a, find a few, right, who God's leading to that narrow way. You're never going to make the gospel popular. The world hates Jesus, right? And if it hates you, it's only because they hated him first. So we're not getting popular in Mentor, <laughs> okay? We're just not, right? I could. You give me half a million dollars and a couple creative ideas, I could get easily 10,000 people to come to church a month. That's not hard. That's just business stuff. That's just business stuff. Right? Give any one of you that have any kind of business sense about you half million to a million bucks, a few good ideas. If you build it, they will come. It's, it's shocking to me how, these, how, how the attractive model churches that are huge, everyone looks to their pastors as absolute geniuses and they're simpletons this is not hard to do folks what's hard to do is disciple making what's hard to do is the life of jesus who fed ten thousand, walked to another side of a sea and said unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood you can have no part of me and they all walked away and then he turned to his disciples and said what you're gonna go too and one of them wanted to but he caved to the peer pressure, but walked away later, right? There's nothing popular about the gospel, but there's a lot of power <laughs> that's given to us to go reach those who God would have on the narrow way. So I really think that we should pray that God would give us the wisdom and over the rest of today and tomorrow, okay? Just simply give us the wisdom to prepare our churches as ministry leaders to be able to exist in any environment to do the Great Commission. And I think you'll start to see the Spirit of God do some things that I think He's always wanted to do. We just haven't seen Him do yet. So again, in our Ohio Bible Fellowship realm, these are good, godly men. They're, they're not disciple-making men. Uh, they're, as we described so far, good guys, but all their churches are in plateau and decline. A number of them have closed, and the rest of them to this day, there's not one that's growing that is still in existence. They're always fighting to stay alive. Good guys. But this is what they all said. 
I was asked, uh, I, was, I was finishing up my MDiv. I had a church history paper to write. I had a, I had a professor named Dr. Mark Sidwell, and, and he loved to do research on Christian groups in world history. And uh, we had like 10 or 15 topics that we could pick from to write our final paper on. It's like a 30, 35-page paper on one of these topics. And so I called him and I said, Dr. Sidwell, is there, I see all the topics, I appreciate all the topics, but I know how much you love to study new things about church history. I said, is there anything that you've wanted to study that you haven't gotten to yet? And, uh, and he said, you know, Tim, he said, believe it or not, I've always wanted to know the history of the Ohio Bible Fellowship. I was like, oh, wow. He goes, would you do a paper on the history? I was like, well, there's no resources, right? There's, back then, online is not much, and then certainly there's nothing in libraries. They've only been in existence since 1968, and no one's written on them. And he goes, I understand that. He said, I'll, I'll allow you to, you know, he said, how many of them are still alive? And I said, I think like 15 um, at that point. Well, there was all 17 were alive at that point, but two of them were in poor health. And so 15. He said, well, just do interviews with the 15. And he said, you can, in your footnotes, document the interview and the quote. I said, all right. So I did that. Everyone that I interviewed said the same thing. All right. So again, this is just from my neck of the woods, but I wonder sometimes if it's not descriptive of a lot of our woods. Right? All right. The world is becoming a darker place. Christians are more and more worldly. Okay. And because of stands on separation that we've taken in the past. Fair enough. But it was really odd. There were, they were 15 different interviews and they all said the same thing. It was almost like the day I'd had a conference as to why Jesus wasn't building his church anymore together. And they concluded this and after a brainstorming session. Honest to goodness, it was the most bizarre thing. And I'm a young guy at this point, right? I, 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 I have always adopted 1 Peter 5. One and two. I will never not respect my elders and treat them like fathers. I will never be caustic or sarcastic or disrespectful of men whose shoulders I stand on. Right? But I'm mulling this through my mind and my heart. I'm thinking, ah, you know, but didn't Jesus say he would build his church? Didn't Jesus say he would build his church? You know? So I thanked him. I appreciated it. I documented it. Wrote about it. And... The reality is, these may be true. Is the world becoming a darker place? Can you think of a Bible author that actually said it was? Right? The world is passing away. The Apostle John, right? This is his first letter. And the lust thereof, but he that does the will of God abides forever. Right? Romans 6. Even the rocks cry out. Sins messed up everything and everyone, right? Are Christians becoming more and more worldly? Isn't that the most bizarre thing? Even Christians that come to church four services a week, get good Bible lessons and good expositional sermons, are actually becoming more worldly? Yeah. It's actually a major cancer in a lot of churches that preach the whole will of God. It's bizarre. It's absolutely bizarre. Right? Yeah. In our neck of the woods, my goodness, they took a stand on separation. They'd separate from a blade of grass if they didn't think it was growing right. <laughs> Seriously. The Ohio Bible Fellowship should, could smell a skunk underneath someone's front porch 300 miles away. 
And then they'd write an article about it. And then they'd post it in their magazine called The Visitor, not The Voice. That was, I say, The Visitor. And they'd, they'd send it all over the world that there's this guy in northwest Ohio that none of you know, and we've actually never had a conversation with, who's doing this, and you all need to be warned about him. I mean, they knew how to do what they did. I didn't agree with it, but they did it. Right? They did it. Right? I respect them. I love them. Phenomenal preachers and teachers. But, yeah, they lost people because of stands they'd taken in the past. They just did. Right? But, in the back of your mind, it's going what? Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church. Right? So anyways, what have you seen? As a ministry leader of men or women, in your own church, if you've had any growth, has it been because of good programs, facilities, and staff? I was actually, this is, these, are, these are three bullets taken from notes that I had in my undergrad training in, my CA, in a CA course, a church administration course. Right? Your church is never going to grow unless you have good programs, excellent facilities, and quality staff. I was taught that from a seasoned veteran pastor who was also a professor. Is there anything wrong with good programs, excellent facilities, or a quality staff? No, but we had all those. And still what? Plateau and decline. Plateau and decline. All right? If you've seen decline, what are the factors behind it? And I think this is not a comprehensive list, folks. I think every one of us has to do a self-analysis. We're going to do this at the end of tomorrow. But every one of you, especially as ministry leaders, you have to do a self-analysis, right? And if there's decline or plateau in your church, if any arrow or any finger gets pointed in the direction other than you, you're messed up. Excuses that I've heard, right? Well, we're never going to have the money for the programs and to have nice facilities and, wow, can't even pay the pastor full-time. He's tri-vocational. Right? I got a buddy of mine that's quad-vocational. Seriously, in western New York, he's quad-vocational. His family owns a 3,000-acre farm in New York. And it takes him and his three brothers and their kids to run it. All right? And he's got two other jobs besides that. And he's a pastor of a small church in western New York of about 35 people that can't pay him. Right? So he comes to a seminar. Right? Yeah, he's heard those excuses. As a matter of fact, he's kind of rested on the laurels of those excuses. Since this can never be true for us, then the... I mean, the syllogistic argument's what? Then our church will, it will never grow. If you follow that logic all the way through, the assumption is we're never going to grow. Jesus doesn't build his church here. I mean, just think about it. What? Did I say something wrong? I mean, seriously, right? These are things we're going through in our brain, in our history. This is how raw the analysis gets, right? Right? So this is what we said. You know, formal or current community issues. Well, our church 
you know, our former pastor was, you know, on the front page for tax evasion, right? And so our church is always going to have this black eye. There's like no way we're going to outlive this. So Jesus won't build his church here anymore because of our former pastor. You can do all your market analysis you want. From a business perspective, that may be right, but Jesus still prophesied something. Right? Old blood. When I'm talking about old blood, I'm not talking about gray hair. I'm not people on morning Geritol. Right? I'm close. <laughs> right? I'm talking about our stiff-necked, stubborn people, unwillingness to change people. And for me, I know we're not in this era anymore of the millennials, but the millennials are probably the most stiff-necked, stubborn, intolerant people I've ever met in my life. But I love them. It's a great, it's a great opportunity and challenge to shepherd them and train them to be disciple-makers. Right? I have a new word for these sweet group of disciple-making people. Right? Before they become disciple-makers. Have you ever heard the word totalitolerance? Yeah. <laughs> They're crying for tolerance, but they're totalitarian in the way they do it. It's kind of weird. Anyways, old blood is just stiff-necked people. And that's just this. So, again, I'm going to pick on Donnie. All right. So Donnie grows up in a church like Grace Church of Menor. And he's been there. Maybe his parents were charter members back in 48. He grows up there all of his life. Goes to Christian college, comes back. He's got a job, right? And all of a sudden, his pastor's going through this mental and spiritual transformation, this theological transformation of, wow, this stuff. And uh, he steps up and he goes, look, he said, I think I know where you're going with this. And he said, I don't like it. He goes, I don't like change. We've been fine for decades. Why are we doing this? Right? Why change? And especially in our neck of the woods, in the Ohio Bible Fellowship, change was actually like a cuss word. <laughs> because change always meant what in our neck of the woods? Compromise. And that's nothing new under the sun in a lot of different parts of our country or world. Right? And you're saying, listen, Donnie, we're not changing anything that we preach, right? We're not even going to change anything that we've been doing for years. All I'm going to do is train you in the Word of God to spiritually reproduce yourself in our community. Nope. I'm good just what I'm doing. I'm teaching Sunday school. I've been tithing here for years. I'm four services a week. I'm on the grass mowing, right? I, even though I can't sing a hoot, I actually joined the choir, right? And, and uh, no, 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 no. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. It's all right. Right? It's all right. For now. It's okay. But that's the only kind of change we're talking about. But old blood can come at any age. Mm -hmm. Okay? But anyways, none of them are excuses. A lot of pastors are so tired. Literally, like so tired. I is one, right? So you're so tired. Right? When you get the kickback, you get the pushback, it even makes you more tired. It doesn't even make it worth sometimes the, uh, why, how, you know, these, these, these things will wear on you. Um, these people will wear on you, but we've got to keep going. 
with the right disposition, right? If your church is leveled off in growth, what are the reasons for it, right? Here's a question of God's natural order of things. Again, just building a case, just through right, critical thinking, okay? Is it generally true that children become like their parents? Not holistically or completely, but generally true. I have three siblings, right? There's four of us, and it's like ridiculously shocking <laughs> how much, you know, we're becoming like our dad or our mom, right? In a lot of different ways. I mean, I was sitting in church. I, I do this often, and it's so bizarre to me. I don't sit up on a stage. I don't want to do that. I want to be down with my people. So I, I, I'll sit in the front row, right? I don't even want to sit in the front row. They make me. I'd rather sit out with our people. But... You know, my dad always sat to his right. For some reason, he always leaned on his right hip like this. See how good I am at it? Because I'm him. <laughs> right? And he always sat and he played with his wedding ring. Right? He'd be sitting there listening to announcements and he'd just sit there and play with his wedding ring. It's like almost every Sunday I realize I'm doing that. I'm just like, just stop, you know? <laughs> it's so weird. But anyways, I, I'm his DNA. And, 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 and then spiritually, you have a tendency to become like them as well, for sure. I mean, Jesus wanted us to become like him, right? We have his spiritual DNA, so we need to have his ministry DNA. Anyways, do students given enough time become like their professors? How many churches have sent off even kids even to Christian colleges, let alone secular colleges, never to get those kids back theologically or philosophically? Why? Because they spent four to seven years with other people teaching them, and they fell in love with them, Right? It happens. Same thing for countries. Did we see an overall moral shift in the foundation of our country in our previous two-term president? Right? That was a moral shift. Now we're in an attitudinal shift. Right? But back then, wouldn't you agree that morally something happened that we may never be able to recover again in our nation's history? Under one guy, just for eight years. So do churches become like their pastors? I know we were going there. You knew I was going there. Right? Guys, I'm telling you, this is some of the hardest stuff we do. They do. They do. And, and it, Will, isn't that scary? Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. I am telling you, man, I've been the pastor at Grace, I think, I don't know, what, what's the math? 06 and we're in 19. We're almost in 20. 13 years. I'll start my fourth. More like not just me, but our whole family. Like families are becoming like us. What would Rhonda do in this situation? What did you, what did Caleb do with this? No, what's Emma doing now in that situation? Because I've got a daughter her age, or young girls come up. And, 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 and in a disciple-making environment, my friends, it's even more axiomatically true. And I don't ever use that word often. It is fundamentally axiomatically true that the church becomes like the pastor and his family, especially if it's a disciple-making church. Okay? 
Yeah. It's kind of scary, actually. It's kind of scary. Shepherd the flock of God, 1 Peter 5. <laughs> Feed the flock of God. And God's given you what over that church? Oversight to the person. Follow the grammar there. There's a mathematic term in there. It says literally to the person. How in the world does any pastor do that? No pastor can fundamentally shepherd a church to the person, even if he's got 10 people, if he's got a decent-sized family. We all, know, all only have so much heart, soul, mind, and strength. Right? And it's tapped out after a little while. We'll go through something here in a little bit. So he's got to equip saints to do the work of what? The ministry, which is what? Right? We've got to equip saints to be shepherds of sheep under us who are under shepherds of the chief shepherd. We'll develop that as we go along here, okay? So what disciple-making is not, right? If you want to rifle these things off, let's talk about what it's not. It's not a program. What is it? If it's not a program, what would you call it? We're going to get to what it is in a second, but what is it? It's a lifestyle. Good. And it's a lifestyle long before it's what? A what in the church? A thing, a culture. So everyone has to own it out there. So when you come in here, it's already like riding a bike because you haven't been on for a long time. Right? Right? It's not merely teaching. It's not merely sitting down and going through a Bible study book with somebody. It's not merely reaching. Right? Because what happens if it's one of those? You'll have someone that has the gift of teaching and they get really passionate about doing a phenomenal lesson and articulating God's word to a class. Nothing wrong with that at all, right? Nothing wrong with it. Praise God. I can actually give Bible verses to support that, right? Four major gift passages, right? Especially 1 Peter 4, 9 through 11, right? Those speaking gifts, all graced to us by God, right? Under the glory of God by Christ Jesus. So it's very, very clear. But it's not just that. Because again, if Donnie's gifted to teach and he's really got a high degree of that gift, he'll get passionate about that, Right? Maybe somebody else in, in, in the class has the gift of evangelism. They're all about outreach. And then they become known in the church as something. Right? He's the teacher. He's the outreacher. That's what they do. Oh, really? <laughs> That's one part of what they do, but what has God called all of us to be? Okay? Think about this. I don't have the gift of giving. I don't. All right? I have to work myself to be a cheerful giver. All right? I love to give away other people's money. I really do. I am really good at that. All right? I am not I don't have the gift of giving. So I can say this. Since I don't have the gift of giving, I don't have to give. All right? Now hang on with me here. You may say, I don't have the gift of mercy, so I don't have to be merciful. Hang on with me. You know where we're going, don't you? I don't have the gift of teaching, so I don't have to... And I don't have the gift of pastor-teacher, so I don't have to shepherd. It doesn't doctrinally work, my friends. 
God may have gifted you to be a specialist in one area, but he's called us to maintenance all the areas. You can't, you don't get the right to do that and be intellectually honest with scripture. Okay? Take this a step farther. Pastor Tim, right? You have the high degree of the pastor-teacher gift, which I don't. I have three men on my staff who are all under me, and their degrees higher than mine. Right? If I die tomorrow, that church explodes. They did, just does. It would be better off. I can't say that doctrinal either, because God's not time yet, but they'll be fine without me. Right? So think about that. If I have a high degree of the pastor-teacher gift, are you with me? Then Grace Church has size because of the pastor's gift. Hmm. So Jesus said, I will only build my church with a guy that's got the high degree of the pastor-teacher gift. Is that what he said? But we think that way. Especially pastors who are struggling. Well, I just can't do it like he can do it. My friends, this is a, if there is a stage 5 cancer, this is a stage 5 excuse cancer of pastors all over the world. I can't do it like him, so therefore. Right? Disciple making is not merely discipleship, and it's really coupled with the next one. It's not merely done in one volume or a class. Remember two of those 300 and some churches, one volume, leader, done, get him busy, plateau and decline, no health. Remember the church in Missouri? Best we'd ever seen, nine books, four to five years. We're done. Let's serve and let's be busy. Ultimately, grows a little bit better for a while, plateau and decline. Right? It's not just that. It can't be. Because that's not what Jesus did. Right? Mark 3.14. Right? Jesus said, I chose you to be what? To be with you. So that I could send you. Right? That's his three-part pledge of allegiance to disciple-making living. Okay? We're not training our people to enjoy his life. We're not training people to go and assume they're going to win so they can be with that person to develop that person so that that person can then do the same. Why? You want to know why? Because, my friends, we have found out that is actually the hard work of ministry. We thought we were working hard, and we probably were. We were very, very busy, long hours, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. But we found out the deeper we go into this, the actually harder ministry becomes. We just realized we just didn't even know. Right? When you're shepherding people to be shepherds of sheep, and we all smell like sheep, Right? The blood, sweat, and tears is there. And why? Number one, because Satan hates that. So the Ephesians 6 reality in your life even becomes more intense. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. Right? Those old fiery darts. We didn't even know this. We didn't even know how dark it could get until the deeper we went into this. 
He hates it. He hates it. Right? And then we realize, too, like I've already said, that most of the affliction that we had before we were disciple-making was self-affliction. It was self-afflicted. We don't have the money for the budget to do this outreach, to do this program. Where's the money to pay the pastor? Where's the money? Where's the money? Why aren't you giving this, that, and the other? Dude, it was all on me. And man, when you start to get guttural like that, and then you try to bring it to your leaders and then to your people, because the devil knows where you're going. I mean, he tried to tempt Jesus away from the fulfillment of it. Anyways. I don't want to be too passionate too soon. I'm just telling you, this, this, is, this, is, this is stuff. It's real stuff. Would you agree that the responsibility was never placed upon a parachurch organization? Would you agree? Why? Because they didn't even exist when Jesus gave us the command. You know, praise God, really. God's merciful. Praise God for schools and institutions that actually did pick up the mantle and try to do what God didn't create them to do. Because local churches weren't doing it. Right? In the last two years, I've been on three different college campuses speaking, right? And in the last five years of all three, they had at least one year, one school the current year, that their theme was training students for discipleship. Right? And they actually had me come speak because they know that we do this at Grace. They said, aren't you excited what we're doing on campus? I'm excited God's merciful. That's what I tell them. I said, wouldn't it be better, though, if you got students from all of our churches who are already well-equipped in what living a disciple-making life was, right? So that you can actually be the spit shine on their lives. Right? And it's like, oh, wow, yeah, I guess so. Right? That's how anemic our churches have become. And these are, these are schools that are sizable that have students from many, many states and countries, right? So it's, a, it's, it's, it's they're getting, they're getting, one, one of the schools, you know, has to keep downsizing or redirecting, they're, they're closing departments. The dean of students told me they're closing major departments and letting staff go and letting these departments go because their freshman class that comes in, this is what he said, and it's a direct quote, our freshman mash tent gets bigger every year. Remember what a mash tent was from the Korean War? What's a mash tent? It's a mobile hospital. And underneath that tent, they do triage. And this is exactly the way that dean of students discussed this with me. Exactly. Every year we have to put more money into hiring more staff and building more space or cleaning out and refurbishing more space to add more hurt kids who are freshmen. And he said, then we have to triage. What's triage? People in the medical field. You're prioritizing what? Right. right. So you're a, you're a med, <laughs> right? And you're running across the airfield at Pearl Harbor. And there's bodies everywhere. What are you going to do, right? If you're a nurse and you're freaking out because you're surprised, what'd they do? Grab your lipstick out of your purse 
If they're dead, you put a red mark on their forehead and you don't touch them. You go to the next person, right? You put an X, they're next. And all the way down, right? You got a system. They're going to live for at least eight hours, even though they've got a massive gash in their leg. Can't touch them right now because we've got to go here and work our way down. That's how he described the freshman class every year. And I said, brother, where are they all coming from? He goes, your churches. Right? So what's the problem? Well, it's the parents. That's what we hear, right? The parents aren't doing a great job in the home. Well, why? Who are they following? <laughs> it still all comes back to me, man. Right? Even Winston Churchill, whether he's bored again or not, I don't know. Heaven will tell. Even Churchill said what? Institutions and nations rise and fall on the shoulders of good or bad leadership. He knew it. He knew it. Jesus knew it. It's not exclusively bound to one-on-one -on -one relationship. Right? And I would even say here, if you want to write in there, it's not exclusively bound to small groups. Right? Small groups, every half generation, become a rage again in a different way. Right? Jesus had 12, and one of them was rogue, and he's the creator of the universe. Right? Barnabas had his, Aquila and Priscilla had theirs, Paul had his. There is no math, there is no number silver bullet to this, right? We encourage our people, just pray for one, be trained by one, and try to win one. Just to start, and then we'll see what the Holy Spirit does with that. And we got all day, the rest of today and tomorrow to talk about that. Just start there. How it ends up is going to be different based on how the Spirit of God works in someone's life and based according to their own physical capacity and their degree of their spiritual gift. That's not rocket science. We'll talk about that tomorrow. But everyone expects at least one. So it's not exclusively bound up in one-on-one -on -one relationship. And discipleship is not exclusively getting six people together or dividing up your church on Sunday nights into home groups. Is that wrong? No. But don't call it discipleship because that's not what the Bible says it is. God never calls it discipleship. Jesus called it something and it's what? Go ye into all the world and make disciples. Home groups studying the Bible are not the fullness of the organic nature of disciple-making. Nothing wrong with them, but if you leave your people there, you'll actually increase your numbers because people like the fellowship. They like to fellowship in smaller groups. They even like to go to people's homes and do that. And they like the Bible. You'll grow it for a while, but you're still going to come to plateau and decline. Why? Because you as a pastor have not equipped those people who are maybe leading those home groups to be disciple makers themselves because you're not. 
So all it becomes is another program that's a good idea to try to get people into the Word of God. And it loses its organic purpose, probably because it never had one. Okay? It's not merely teaching. It's not merely gathering. It's not merely studying the Bible together. Right? And I'm not decrying any of those things. I'm just saying it's not merely those things. Are you with me? I know this is kind of hard to like wrap your minds around. <laughs> okay? And I look at your eyes and I don't know really what I'm seeing or not seeing in there. All right? We have not stopped one thing in our church. Right? But we'll talk about what has happened, all right? And it's never being primarily discipled by someone outside your church. I think because of, because of devices and because of, in back in the day, cassette tapes and CDs and DVDs, a lot of people became enamored with the ability of a pastor teacher or a teacher and they primarily were actually getting fed by someone outside the orb of their local church more than they were getting fed by their own pastor and someone inside their local church. And then the tail begins to wag the dog, and then they, yeah, they just come to church to go through the motions, and, and their church becomes like a pet. I like the pet, really like my pet. It's going to be there every week for me, every time I walk in the door, it's going to be there, but man, I really, <laughs> you know, my heart is really, no, no one can feed me like, my favorite author is, oh wow, right? But in a disciple-making church, that gets diminished greatly to the point where it can be and should be diminished completely. To the point where we are actually dependent, I'm not saying not enjoying, but actually depending on being fed outside the local church. Dependent. That, that goes away. That goes away. We'll talk about that tomorrow. All right? I still enjoy sermons from other people. I still enjoy books. But let me tell you what I don't have to have anymore. I don't have to have that. Because my church and the way they instruct me, <laughs> you get disciple-making people going, you're going to have a feast of food that they're going to be feeding you and you're not going to have any time left to go to some conference or some seminar or listen to some podcast or what. There's just no time. I don't have any time anymore. Well, you're just not an intellect. What? Well, you can say whatever you want. I just don't have time. I may be the, the dullest of the butter knives in the drawer. I'm just telling you, I just don't have time anymore. What disciple making is, right? I tried to pick these words as carefully as we could. So everyone in the room could really understand the nature of it. It's normal. It's exclusively local church. It's individual. Something that God the Spirit empowers as Christ builds His church. Are you with me? Okay. It is each saint shouldering the responsibility to spiritually reproduce themselves. It is the commitment of my life to Donnie's life for how long? Not nine books. Not four years. 
We're going to study this after lunch, okay? It's where we really have a hard time. And that's really, I think, where a lot of pastors and ministry leaders decide to check out is after lunch. They'll still be here bodily, but I think in their minds, they can't even begin to wrap their minds around what it means to equip a saint, to equip another saint to shepherd them for life. They can't even, they can't even grasp that. They don't have the time. They don't have the energy. They don't even, a lot of them don't even think it's a thing. But when you look at the biblical theology of it, you can't refute it. And I want you to, right? Because I want to be the last person in the world to stand before God and have Jesus say you screwed up in those seminars, Tim. Right? How much did you pay to come here today? Right? No one's making any money off of this. We just want to try to help. But even then, right? Tell me if something's wrong. Right? But anyways... We'll learn this. It requires that the pastor be the chief disciple maker. If the pastor's not personally, and I would add to this, his family's not actively involved, then what? What can we assume? Yeah, the church isn't going to do it. All right, there's a couple of diagrams. We're used to programs, right? And they all look like this. Clean start and end. Measurable accompaniments, train a few to serve a limited time. Rarely repeated, right? Constantly have to be reworked and tweaked. A lot of, lot of meetings after those programs, right? How did it work? How did it didn't work? How do we tweak it for next year? A lot of time spent there. It takes a lot of effort to rally people, to participate, Right? I told you about our event-based evangelism. Three people, 57 times 13, do the math. Hollow, if any, success, if we're gonna, however we're going to define success. I was always left wondering, what did I actually accomplish for Christ? And the only thing I could rest on my conscience was, you know, at least you casted more seed. Right? Yes, there was nothing wrong with that. Programs contrasted to the relationships, right? This first one just gives us heartburn, right? Especially when the average stay of a pastor now in the United States is less than five years. We used to say that about youth pastors, right? Now it's senior pastors, right? How in the world can I start something if this is not happening, well, I would say a lot of pastors bolt away from churches because they themselves never started this. Right? Right? Trains people to serve for a lifetime, but serve not a program, but the disciple-making lifestyle. Many individuals training other individuals. Disciples make disciples. It naturally grows. And it really results in the First thing being fulfilled is described in Revelation 2, 4, and 5, where Christ's last words are our first command. Go and make disciples. And what did Jesus tell the head pastor of the church of Ephesus? You've lost your first love, and that's indicative how. Do you remember that? We always get stuck on losing your first love. But what was descriptive of having lost that love? How did they know they had? 
says you he says unless you get back to the first things unless you repent are you with me who's he talking to to the angel of the church of Ephesus isn't it interesting he didn't address the church who's he talking to right unless you pastor and what was Ephesus doing? They were doing everything right. Standing against air, preaching the whole will of God, well-administrated, well-fed, and Jesus still was about to remove the lampstand. Unless the pastor got back to loving Jesus, okay, that's nice and mystical. What is the objective side of knowing that pastor loves Jesus? Unless you repent and get back to the first things, it's not chronos, it's protos unless you get back to the early priority of things. Study it out as much as you want. Any theologian, any, any commentary, any historian, all right, the majority of people always say, unless that pastor gets back to living a disciple-making life himself, Jesus would remove the lampstand. Isn't that the craziest thing you've heard in your life? That you could preach the whole will of God, stand against error, have all these great things and people and programs and tithers and servers, and, and, and Jesus is still saying, You know what? Y'all don't love me. Well, we worship you every. Of course we love you. Eh, you really don't. I'm telling you, folks, this is, this is hard stuff. I understand. You may not come back after lunch. I, I, I'm not, I wouldn't be offended. I wouldn't be offended. Right? At least tell me, tell me why you're not coming back. Right? So I can learn from it. Seriously. I'm telling you. Whatever analogy you want to use. Are a lot of churches in hospice right now? Are they? Are we done doing compressions? When do we call it? Stop. You're going to bust his chest. Call it. 101 a.m. August 29, 2019. I'm telling you guys, this is pandemic. And I'm not even being like, I'm not even being like emotional about this. This is like statistically understood. We are closing more churches than we are planting. And when we're planting, we're not planting with a biblical philosophy of ministry, even in our strength. Someone's got to call it like they're going to call it. Right? And it's because pastors, right, even though they're seasoned, sweet, faithful men, got away from the first things. And the first things simply are, are you going into your community, pastor? Who do you know? Who are you befriending? Who are you spending time with? Who are you praying for? Who are you trying to reach? And in the meantime, who are you personally reproducing yourself in, in your church until you all wait to win somebody? Something's got to happen with those priorities. If we're doing that, then we're telling Jesus, I love you. Why? What did Jesus say? He said it, not me. Unless you are willing to confess my name 
before men, I will not what? Pin drop on carpet. You can hear it. I mean, this is, this is how raw it is. Have you ever walked into a trauma room of someone in your church that's been in an accident and they've just, they're just like on a tube and they're just waiting for the family to show up to pull it? Have you ever done that? I've done that many times. It's agonizing. That's what I feel like most churches we go out to try to help are like. Just waiting for the family to get here so we all can decide to pull the plug together. It's because the pastor's not out doing the work of an evangelist. He's busy. Schedule's crowded. But he's not doing the first things, and he hasn't done it probably his whole life because he was raised the way I was raised. Something's given. Something's got to give. But it's never too late to do right. <laughs> I mean, isn't that what Jesus is saying to the shepherd at Ephesus? I haven't removed the lampstand yet. I mean, I've been... Eh. But you still have one more chance to repent. And my friends, if repentance happens among pastors and the people become like the pastors, how much fun does the Holy Spirit have in that environment? I mean, seriously. And we find out as pastors, we've been the one that have been quenching and grieving the Holy Spirit by our inactivity in first things. Man. Again, just a rehearse of what we saw in the previous two slides, okay? All right? Jesus' upside-down strategy. So I found a resource that thought this was interesting because it kind of gives us in a picture what's so simply understood. Modern-day discipleship. Bring them in, bring them in. Field of dreams theology. Get them to come. Get them to attend. Get them to connect. Get them to serve. And how many are going? Right? How much money and time and effort spend in the first model to your left? How many of you have gotten exhausted and worn out, right? Torn limb from limb, it seems, right? Got to go on sabbatical like tired. Seriously. You do this for 10 years, I got to go on sabbatical like tired. But Jesus' discipleship is what? The Godhead, three, very interested in reaching 12, and you guys can do the math with the 70 and the 500, can't you? In the Gospels. And what happens? Twelve ordinary men, uneducated, blue-collar guys, turn the world upside down. Acts 3. Right? I understand it's an apostolic time. I understand what the Holy Spirit's doing in the book of Acts. I get it. Right? But we're going to study a New Testament church post-Acts. Right? Uh, it's going to give us a normative pattern for this, okay? So discipling the few is hard, it's slow, it's, it's limiting, and it demands a lot from you, and it demands a lot from your people. So remember I told you I had won seven people to Christ, and two of them are already home with the Lord? So I've got five people, all right? So I have six people in my home, five other than me. So just think about that. We'll do this after lunch, right? How long does it take for you to parent your family, to, 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 to spouse 
your love your spouse and to parent your family? How much time? So then if you win, as you're shepherding individually five people that you've personally won to Jesus, and you still have to family your family and job your job, how much time does that take? In other words, if I win them to Christ, I'm not handing them off to somebody else in my church. I've got five new babies that I have to tend to like babies needed tended to. Right? How much time? We're going to talk about that after lunch. It totally turns your world upside down for good. You have to reanalyze some things that we're going to talk about after lunch, but it's healthy, it's good. But it does demand a lot from Tim Potter. Like I said, I'm realizing now what shepherding really is. Personally, and then shepherding people to do the same. Okay? By the way, we have an understanding in our seminars that so we can get a lot done in a little bit of time, take a drink from a fire hose, I call it, that anytime you need a human break, just do it. <laughs> just go and come back. Because in order to cover everything by lunch tomorrow, we've got to hoof it. All right? Second rule. If you don't stop me and ask a question, when something's on your mind or your heart, it's your own fault, all right? I love discussion on this stuff, right? Um, just ask. Ask away, all right? Yep. You're welcome. See, what a great question. You want to get all the water coming out of the fire hose, right? <laughs> I just hopefully won't make you choke. Thanks, Will, by the way, for opening up your building and mm -hmm. thanks to your people and all that you're allowing God to do through you here. It's a huge blessing to all of us. And I was praying on the plane last night and again this morning hopping over from Dallas just that God would use this small group of people to, to turn Texas upside down, right? It's amazing what the omnipotence of the Holy Spirit can do through a small group of people. In, in, in the bigness of what Texas is, believes is big or what the United States believes is big. It's crazy how God does bigger things through smaller groups. If we just, if just this group of people would decide to do this, the Spirit of God would just start to do what He does. Okay? We ready? All right. So here we are. This is my family. Remember, the church becomes like Who? So hang on with me here. This is not a commercial about my family. This is not, oh, Tim's proud of his family. This is not, uh, Tim really loves his wife, or, or, or he thinks all this of his kids. It's not that at all. I am telling you there is more, sometimes, a lot more bumps and bruises than there are glories in, in, in their kids. Their kids. Kids are kids. Right? Yes, sir. Are those all your kids or is your wife? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hear you. <laughs> That's recorded, brother. <laughs> thank you, Will. Rhonda thanks you. Yeah. 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 Emma is her doppelganger. I mean, it's crazy. How, and the older Emma gets, it's kind of really, it's kind of like really weird, like good weird. Because I think Rhonda's cute. So I think Emma's cute. But anyways. Don't you too? You think, you think so too. They're pretty, aren't they? Yeah. All right, yeah, so Caleb, my oldest, is on the right, and second oldest, Mike, is on the left. Third oldest is Noah, 
back off to my left, and then Emma. So Caleb's 23 now. Uh, Mike is 21 now. Uh, Noah is 18 for like three more days, four more days, maybe five. I don't know, whatever September 2nd is. And uh, Emma's 16. So, yeah. So I had a responsibility with these kids to tell them how I had failed as a pastor. Because remember, they're being born into my family while I'm still failing. So if you want to live a Deuteronomy 6 lifestyle with your kids when they wake up, when they walk by the way, when they lie down, hey guys, I'm trying to grow in the Lord, but dad's made some mistakes as a pastor. And guys, I really don't have any friends in the community. I have a lot of acquaintances. I know a lot of people, but I don't have very many friends. I said, would you guys go with me to start making some friends in our community? All right, whatever you want, Dan. Yeah, I guess. How are we going to do this? And I'm going to tell you how we did it, right? Before I tell you how I did it, I want to remind you that the people in your church become like you. So before you decide to go out and do this with your family, I want you to think about your flocks. Is what you're going to do still being holy as he's holy? Are you still going to be able to point your kids into Christ's likeness while you still get out in the community? Right? You can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Right? We're not going to go out into the community and leave our families unprotected. You can't do that. It doesn't mesh with Scripture. But we still have to be out in the community. Right? And understand that you need to be that careful with your family because people in your flock, again, are going to follow you. Right? So then you've got to start praying with your family before you go and as you go, like all the time, because if you're praying that the Lord would use you to be light, you're going to be looking. You can connect that to Colossians 4, 2 through 6. If you're going to be praying, you will be looking for opportunities. The grammar there is actually, we're getting this word opportunistic. But prayer comes before opportunity. So you've got to be praying with your kids. If you just go <coughs> without guarding their hearts, and if you go without praying, it's not going to happen. If you go with guarding their hearts and you're not going to pray, it's not going to happen. You have to bear down in prayer with your wife and your kids. And you've got to prepare them before and as you go, right? Deuteronomy 6, to always be ready. Always be expecting and assuming that the Lord's going to give you at least one. So we went into one particular, I do this differently now in the last couple seminars. We went into one particular part of our city because of how God created our kids. Right? And then the people in our church started to do the same according to how God created their kids. And they just started going together in the community prepared and prayed up, expecting God to do something. To not make acquaintances, but to make friendships. All right? Some of our people, their DNA is given to giving birth to STEM kids, right? Science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. So now they're going into 
science Olympiads and they're going into being directors of science Olympiads that their kids are part of, right? Some people are given to um, agriculture, right? They love, they love the country, they love farming, and they love 4-H. Do they have 4-H in Texas? All right. And they, they go out and they just, they just love to do camps and, and uh, go to horseback riding stuff and, you know, mucking stall camps and feeding cattle camps. And they just love 4-H stuff. The Great Geauga County Fair, one county over from us, is happening next week. And it's a deal. It's a thing. And some of our kids will be out there in the 4-H community, right? Riding the horses, right? Feeding the horses, mucking the stalls. But they're doing that with who? Other people. But what are they doing before they go muck stalls and bring hay with their parents? Starting in the homes, and they're preparing, and they're praying, and they're only doing that because who's doing that? Right. Are you with me? This has got to be very, it's, it's calculated, it's clear as ice, but it's not just as cold. And it has to be maintenance like that. Else this is not going to happen. Why? Because it's not a program. It's a lifestyle. Right? And we don't expect a ton of results real quick like programs do. Right? We just expect God to do something, regardless of how, what size it is. Numbers in disciple making is quite insignificant, quite frankly. Your church may never reach 100. That doesn't make you insignificant. If you're 15 right now, and you're in existence in a community that has 700 citizens in it, if you're at 30 in 10 years, and you have 100% growth, who's going to decry that? If your people are just being obedient disciple makers, right? Size is insignificant in all this. Right? We have a lot of people who quit because they're not as big as they think they should be. Right? And numbers analysis is almost completely off the table when you have a disciple-making church because, quite frankly, no one cares about numbers anymore. They just care about souls. Are you with me? So, for us, it wasn't 4-H. For us, it wasn't STEM. The largest contingency of our church is actually involved in the Cleveland Area Youth Orchestra and Youth Chorus. We have a lot of musically inclined kids in our church. Right? So when I get on our local PBS station and I watch the Cleveland Orchestra Youth Chorus, I can see familiar faces peppered throughout. Right? I get to listen to the Youth Chorus accompany or the youth orchestra accompany the chorus, and it's just wonderful. But why are our people out there? What's even more comforting? I know what they're doing in preparation before, and in prayer before, and I know they're out there taking the skills that the Lord's given them to do what? Not make acquaintances, but make friends so that they can spiritually reproduce themselves. And if they're prepared up and they're prayed up, they can expect up that God will do that. Okay? It's not an arrogant expectation. <laughs> Jesus said he would do it, and he called you to be a fisher of men, so you can expect that. What do you, what do you like to do? What's your name? Yeah. My name's Greg. I'm going to ask this dude first, real quick. What's your name? 
Jonathan. Jonathan. That's my brother's name. Can't forget that. How old are you? 14. What do you like to do? Video games? Don't mind them. You don't mind them? <laughs> don't mind them. You like to ride your bike? You like to hunt? Good. Good. Lots of things to do with hunting with your age. My boys like to fish. And so next week we're going walleye fishing with a buddy in our, in our friend group and mentor whose wife's saved, but he's not. And we're going out on his boat to go walleye fishing on Lake Erie. But why are we going? Because he's my friend. By the way, he's been unsaved and he's been my friend for over 15 years. This is Deb Catania's husband, if you remember Deb. Right? So we're going with Joe next week, me and Micah. And uh, I, think, I think Russell's going to come. Russell or Calvin, one of his sons are going to come. Right? And we're just going to go fishing. But we're relating with a purpose. Okay? And Mike is going to learn from me again. He's already learned this because he did this where he went to college, his first college, and now he's doing it again in his second college. He was doing it in high school before he came out. Not many, trying to win at least one in every place you go, right? And if you're prepared up and prayed up, you can expect up, and uh, you get opportunities. Anyways, so for us, it was just uh, 28 years of marriage now, as of August 10th this month, headed into our 28th year. Um, I only have seven souls. She has none yet. Does that make her life and ministry useless? No, she's, she's awesome. She's awesome. But you're married to a different kind of person now when that person's burdened for someone in the community. It's the, it's the most bizarre thing. I'll just speak for my home. It's the most bizarre thing where you can have a wife who's just as addicted to ministry as you are and never live a disciple-making life. It's crazy. But I'll tell you now, the way we're able to love each other now is even different. It's, it's interesting. The depth of our love for each other, the, the very nature of it is different. And it continues to grow differently when you're not just busy in ministry, but you're actually burdened in ministry. Okay? Anyways, so our kids took us into the sports world. And uh, we got Caleb into t-ball when he was three. Right? We did the same thing with all the boys, really. Baseball is where it started for us. And then all the boys went into basketball. And all of them went into football. One of them continued with it. Two of them stopped. But Caleb went on with baseball. He got us into meeting a lot of people in town. Now, you remember, I grew up in this town. I was in this town through college. I was in this town until I was 41, right? And we're just starting to get out into the community, not even knowing what full disciple-making is when I'm 28. No, no, excuse me. Hold on. We're not even out in the community until I'm 35, no wait, 34 with him. 
okay? And this is way at the beginning of, of even beginning to study what disciple-making is. Not even close to understanding it. But we're, we're, we're going through the history that I told you guys before. Micah comes along when I'm 30. We get him out in the community with Micah. He ends up going the basketball route. And Noah ends up going the football route. And I'm telling you, in the football stands is a completely different crowd, by and large, than the baseball or the basketball group. Okay? But you have to remember, remember I grew up in this community. So they're getting into high school now. And I'm going to stands in my own community to my shame. And I'm sitting with people that grew up in my community. The biggest shame for me is how many people I met that grew up two to three to four streets away from me. That I delivered newspapers to their homes for my job in elementary, junior high, and grade school and I'm meeting them for the first time in my mid to late 40s. First time. Same year of graduation of school, same community, four, four and a half decades. Had no clue. But it's never too late to do right. <laughs> right? So anyways... Gave us lots of opportunities. Micah, Caleb, Noah, and now Emma. Uh, Emma's our soccer and track chick. And um, um, all I can tell you is they made friends with unrighteous people. And my job was to maintenance their walk with God, to pray up. And I'm, our, our house has just been nothing but a revolving door of unsaved kids for years now. And it's really interesting. They would much rather come to our house than have our kids to their house. So we just have kids over all the time. Right? We had you know, full, full football teams, full basketball teams, full soccer teams, full baseball teams over for cookouts, for team cookouts. Um, developing relationships with their parents. And it's hard to do, you know, because they know, they know your faith right? But they know how much you love them. And, and the majority of them walk away, but you're still burdened for them. But you still have this handful of people that you're regularly interacting with and that are your friends, you know. Um, but anyways, so Emma's got her cluster of kids, gals, girls that are in the summertime almost daily <laughs> uh, coming through her house. Hey, Maggie, how's it going? Right? Hey, hey, hey. Oh, hey, you're here. Good to see you. you know, glad you're here. So many stories I could tell you of the opportunities that God's given my kids, but it's, 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 it's neat to have them send texts through the years of just someone they had a chance to finally talk to Jesus about at a lunchroom, on a bus ride to a game, or actually in the dugout. <laughs> you know, Potter, we've been playing you forever, you know. True story. It's a rough time at the plate, his senior year of high school. Uh, just had a cold spell. It happens in baseball, right? Head coach walks over to him, right? 
says, Caleb, you know what's going to make you loosen up at the plate? Go home tonight and do something inappropriate with a girl. It's a public school. It's what you do. In baseball, I don't know if you guys knew that, that's what you do. You either go get drunk or you go be immoral. It loosens you up at the plate. That's just what, that's what pagans do. They tell you that all the way into the pros. Go get drunk or go find a girl. Right? And so the players, true story, the players, the coach Taylor Potter ain't never going to do that. Isn't that nice to know your kid's known for that? Right? If you prepare them and you're prayed up, and then coming out of that dugout with Caleb is Evan Lovick, just one, <laughs> that actually is God's drawing because you're praying and now you're relating, right? And his parents, right? To share the gospel with, right? A lot of people would say, you can throw your kids into that cesspool of an environment. Well, I didn't throw them in there. <laughs> right? We're in the community. We prayed up. We prepared up. And I walked with them. I didn't throw anyone anywhere. I love my kids. God loves them more. <laughs> but the church becomes like the pastor's family. You got to do something. You got to be teaching to be fishers of men. And that doesn't start when you're 23. Right? When does it start, by the way? Did Jesus say? Right? So that's how we got into community. Um, Noah, uh, true story. Some of you have seen it. I put it on Facebook if you're part of the disciple-making church group. I think Will's part of that. Um, guys that have taken the seminar that have gone on and started to do something like super proactive in their, in their churches in relationship to this. We share testimonies and pictures and this, that, and the other. And uh, true story, first game of the year, St. Ed's last year. It's Menor's rival, St. Ed's and St. Ignatius, big football schools in Ohio. And the Cleveland area and the Cincinnati are always battling it out for who has the toughest football schools. This kid on his team, he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a tackle, defensive tackle, who's headed to Division I uh, football easy. Um, by the way, if you come to the mentor seminar, Frankie's going to come and give his testimony. If you ever want to come up to mentor for one of the advanced seminars, you'll hear from him. But his mom comes over to us first game, and we knew, uh, we knew her from years past, not as good as we knew some. Uh, she says, hey, Tim and Rhonda, I just wanted to sit down real quick before kickoff and tell you how much we appreciate Noah. I said, oh, okay, good, good. I said, uh, so what's been going on? And he goes, well, the kids for years, I don't know if you knew this or not, but the kids for years have been trying to get him to cuss. And I was like, oh, okay. Has he? <laughs> so that's what I said, has he? And she goes, no. She goes, they've been trying to do everything. She said, to my shame, my son's been part of a group that's actually been trying to hurt him in practice just to get him to cuss. And I, 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 I was just like, seriously? And she goes, yeah, she's in tears. She goes, I just want to say I'm sorry. And she said to say thank you for raising such a good kid. And I was just like, it's not us. What do you mean? She goes, it's not you. No, I said, it's just Jesus. <laughs> Trust me. I said, I can't produce a kid that doesn't cuss when kids are trying. That's, that's Jesus. That's not me. You know? And what am I thinking? If I don't confess his name before men, he's not going to confess my name before the Father. <laughs> that's just Jesus. That ain't me. That ain't my church. That ain't his mom. That's Jesus. Right? Oh, wow. 
Jesus, man, I used to go to church when I was a little girl. I haven't gone back in a long time. Right? Well, hey, don't come to our church. But if you'd like to sit and talk about Jesus sometime, I'd love to. Okay. So we got a bunch of ladies in our church that would love to talk to you about Jesus outside of our church. Okay. So anyways, fast forward fourth quarter, like two and a half, three minutes left in the game, right? It's back and forth all game long. Frankie goes down with an injury, right? Um, I, I, I had eight surgeries before I graduated from high school, so I can tell when someone's injured or when they're hurt. <laughs> and he was injured, you could tell. Anyways, find out the next day, um, he had, he had, it was one of those pretty gruesome ones, right? He had all four ligaments, cartilage. He messed it up pretty bad. So he knows he's going to surgery, right? Anyone, one of the things that God laid in our hearts when we're praying for kids that our kids interact with is creative ideas that the Lord would let us use to, to reach them for Jesus as we befriend them. And God laid it on Ron and I's heart that if any one of our teammates went down with a season-ending injury, that our family would take a gift to their home. I knew what that was like. Maybe that's why God put it on my heart, because I had lost a number of seasons in high school from injuries, and I always knew how that crushed me as a kid, you know? And if I didn't have Jesus in my heart at that point, I think I would have been totally on drugs and alcohol, for sure. Totally. And farther than that. But anyways, uh, I just said, kids, you know, let's pray about this. What do you think? Oh, yeah, that'd be fine. I said, will you guys go with me? I said, let's go shopping. Right? And so what we do is we just get them one of those bags kids throw over their shoulders, you know, that you can scrunch up. What are those called? I don't know. And a little Nike bag or something. And I said, let's go put some, you know, Ohio State, Cleveland Browns, Cleveland Indians. Let's get them some gift cards, you know, to, to Chipotle or something like that. And let's just throw it in there and let's take it over to their house. And so we did. We did that for all the kids on all their teams. So we, Frankie was one. Right? There was two other boys that had seasoning. We did it with them too. But Frankie, we did that. Well, Frankie had surgery. Frankie's going. They were super abundantly thankful for it and all that kind of stuff. Oh, it's so nice. Da -da 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 -da. In our mind, we're thinking, this is not the silver bullet. This is just one way we love lost people. And hopefully we'll get the gospel to them one day, right? So he has surgery. He's in his sixth week of recovery, and he gets this horrible infection in his knee, right? It goes throughout his whole body. He's messed up, right? He goes back to the hospital. The Cliff's note says they got to clean out his whole knee. They've got to undo the repair that they did while they're cleaning out his knee, right? It's emergency surgery. He comes home from that surgery on six weeks of IV antibiotics. He's walking around his home, right? And then he's walking around school with a pole, with, an, with a bag hanging from it, with a, right? Six weeks. He's told by the doctor at that point, after he cleans out the knee after surgery, he said, you're, you're, I'm sorry, you're never going to take another snap again because the infection, you know, melted his meniscus. I mean, the sutures that they'd sutured, the meniscus, they all got infected. So it affected both discs and they had to undo all the ligament repairs. And he had to be like that until six weeks ago today. He had to go infection-free after six weeks for almost a whole year before they would go back in and try to repair what they could repair, and that was six weeks ago uh, this week. So anyways, Noah and I went back to the hospital uh, after the emergency surgery, and um, I got to meet his dad at that point. It's a broken home, 
and got to meet his girlfriend, Jordan, and her mom. And uh, I just said, man, I'm so sorry. Remember, we had already been in their home. We'd already relating. Noah's already relating with him for three years of football, right? Um, the connection of the game at the first game, right? Now we're, anyways, just connecting dots as best we can here. Um, I just said, man, I'm so sorry. I want to let you know I'm praying for you. Uh, our whole church is praying for you. I said, do you mind if I just pray with Frankie real quick? I got permission from the parents, and they said, that's fine. And I knelt down next to his bed, and, um, you know, he's a big old, big old boy. And he started to bawl his eyes out because he knew it was over, and I knew it was over for him. It was over for me at one point. He just pulled me up on the bed and saw he, he's like, I'm just like laying on top of him. <laughs> and we're both crying like babies, right? And uh, I just prayed. And uh, when I was done praying, I said, you know, Frankie, I said, you're not going to be able to get through this. You're just not. I said, I couldn't. I said, my mom and dad could not help me. My sister nor my two brothers could help me. No one could help me. I said, only Jesus got me through what I went through. And I want to let you know, and I said, as much as your mom and dad love you and they're here, you love them, don't you? And I look at him, they said, yeah. I said, you can't get him through this, right? Whole. I said, only Jesus can. And uh, I said, can I come over to your house when you get home? Uh, and and can, can Noah and I talk to you about Jesus at your home? And I got permission from the parents, and they said, yeah. Well, anyways, he got home. Second, third day he's home, we went over, and, and that was the day he trusted Christ. And, and um, he just led his girlfriend to Christ um, a week ago Tuesday. So it'll be two weeks ago tomorrow morning. He led Jordan to Christ. His mom got saved, and she's being discipled by a gal in our church, Rose Kidd. I meet with Frankie every week since Noah went to school in January to get ready for football. And... Um, Jordan knows Byron, right? As a matter of fact, Jordan, Frankie's girlfriend, Jordan, is Byron's girlfriend's best friend since grade school. When you're out doing disciple making, you're starting to see God had this grid he already had planned. <laughs> and we've been missing out on all the connections he wanted us to have, you know? We just see, keep seeing connection after connection after connection after connection. And it wasn't, we didn't invite them to come to a youth outreach. This is just out in the stands, you know? So anyways... So I think Byron's going to get saved. I'm not God. I understand that. But he, I think his dad's going to get saved. I think his dad's step, his stepmom's going to get saved. And I think Jordan's going to be able to lead Byron's girlfriend to Christ. And this is just becoming a thing. For us and our family, it's a great blessing, right? Whether it be Evan Lovick, whether it be Byron, whether it be Frankie, whoever it is, it's not a lot of people. Do you understand that? This is still not a lot of people, but it's a big deal. Okay. And Frankie goes, hey, maybe Byron and I, if he gets saved, we can start like a little Bible study after practice on Thursdays in the locker room. I think Coach Trivel let us do that. I said, I'm sure he would, right? So anyways, who knows what God's going to do with it. But it's slow. It's been a lot of years, been a lot of prayer. And in the meantime, you're guiding your kids' hearts, and they have their own weaknesses and their own strengths and all these things. But that Deuteronomy 6 lifestyle, it's slow, it's agonizing, there's not going to be a lot of people saved, but again, your people become like you do. So I say if we have six and we win three over 10 years, 
if every family in the church wins three over 10 years, what's it look like? Right? And what are people learning and what they're developing over time? Well, what time's lunch, my man? It's noon right now. Okay. Time for lunch? After lunch, I want to do this. We're going to analyze each other's weeks. Because I had to do this. My wife and I had to do this. Then I had to do this with the leaders of our church. Okay? We all have 168 hours in a week. All right? When I first did this, I had 195 hours of all the things I thought I was responsible for. Then I thought, uh-oh, that's not possible. I can't put 195 hours into 168 because you can't change 168. Right? So the, but it just, it's an exercise that makes you go back and help me as a pastor rethink my week. How is I redeeming the time? Okay? To, to work my way back to even being a leader for my family and carving out time for disciple making in my family. It takes forever. And then you still have to battle to keep that time protected. All right? We're going to walk through this together and you do your own numbers. Maybe we don't have to do this. Maybe you can just assume what this is and do your own numbers on your own, and we can jump ahead after lunch beyond this. All right? But put down every part of your life where you spend time on a weekly basis and put a number to it. You, you should add into that, obviously, shopping and vacationing and right, whatever you do, right, exercising, this, that, and the other. Put it all down there and see how far below the bottom of the barrel you are. Maybe you're looking up at the bottom of the barrel. Maybe you'll be right at the bottom of the barrel. But then analyze then, where am I being spiritually reproductive? Am I even being spiritually reproductive? Do I even have any time left in my schedule to intentionally pray for and be with unsaved people and determine to be with them until they get saved and even be with them if they don't? For me and my family, right now, we've got four, maybe five hours a week we can do that. That's all I got. Church life's pretty busy. Okay? And we primarily carve out that time according to our kids' schedules to be in the, be in the, be in the community. But now Ron and I realize that we've only got two more years left of a high schooler. Then we're going to be empty nesters. So now we're starting to think, what are we going to do to keep that four to five hours carved out every week? And we're having constant conversations about that, right? Because we can't stop being the example for our flock, okay? Um, so anyways, maybe we'll dabble in that a little bit after lunch or whatnot, and I'll let you take us to the segue to lunch. <laughs>